chaos dragons, girls, messy rooms. I am respected academic Jordan Peterson, and I am expanding my reach across all forms of podcasting with this, my first spoopy cast. I am here to tell you tales of horror caused by loss of faith in the individual, beginning with the most horrifying creature of all, Rocco's modern basilisk. Strap yourselves in buckos. We're about to enter a zone of chaotic terror. literally moves Philip Roth died sad R.I.P. him he taught me to be weird and horny um, but we've got Elizabeth Sandifer I'm, I'm pronouncing your second name right aren't I Sandifer yes, yes okay very good like Lucifer but with sound um, okay exactly yeah, I'm sure that's what your ancestors were going for there um, yes I, I, I'm pretty sure that's you know the literal name of the place and it had nothing to do with like a sandy spot of England or anything. Yeah. Uh, and she is the author of Neora Neora Reaction a Basilisk Essays on and around the alt right. It came out uh, when did the original of this came out? Because I've got only got a uh, the new new version. Oh, I mean, it depends on what you want to uh, how you want to count it. There there was a Kickstarter edition that came out in like the late summer um, of 2016 mm -hmm. and then I got the final edition out toward the end of 2017 and then had to reissue it uh, after I changed my name uh, in March cool so and luckily nothing has happened uh, between now and 2016 that could possibly make any of this um, less relevant uh, the, the, the no, entire not at all. thing I... has just stopped so yeah, yeah, I, I, I was wrong. None of this was a concern. It, yeah, it was everything has turned out fine, and um, I'm just about to go off to my work in the communal uh, factories now that we've instituted full uh, space communism. Um, Perfect. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, but so before we jump into Neo Reaction, uh, let's get to know you a bit first. Um, so tell tell everyone about uh, who you are, where you're from, where you grew up shoe size um let's see i'm a 12 um i grew up in western connecticut new england area uh these days i'm based in uh lovely ithaca new york at the bottom of cayuga lake 
Um, I'm a blogger and writer. My sort of main line is actually media criticism. I write about uh, the TV show Doctor Who and a lot about British comic books. Uh, but I moonlight in other areas and ended up getting uh, this book about uh, politics and the end of the world out because it wanted to be written. It, it, yeah, it did. And, um, and it was. Uh, so when you talk about um, British comic books and as far as your formative influences go, what's, what stuff were you into when you were kind of getting into being a media critic, academic, however you define yourself now? Um, the point where I, I started on a lot of the media criticism blogging, um, it was right early in the Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who, where my Doctor Who fandom had kind of rekindled, so that explains that. And then I was, um, really getting into Alan Moore, uh, you know, the comic writers, more overtly, um, mystical and occult stuff. Like Promethea um, and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I had already read Promethea. Um, and that had been a big influence on me in college. Uh, but I finally got around to, like, giving From Hell some attention as opposed to going, yeah, this is long and hard and probably very good. Um, and, and and that blew my mind a bit. But actually, the things that were really influencing me are a bunch were a bunch of um, kind of obscure, these days pretty hard to find, legal copies of uh, spoken word performances he did uh, across the 90s and the uh, early part of the 21st century, which were him doing sort of magical uh, workings in spoken word poetry. Uh, and just all of that ended up being a, a, a big influence uh, on me, uh, exposed me to a school of thought called uh, psychogeography, uh, associated with people like Ian Sinclair, who's a frequent collaborator of Alan Moore's. And, a pretty, uh, pretty and then that got me... Yeah, and then that got me dragged over to um, the French situationists who originally coined the term psychogeography, people like uh, Guy Debord, uh, 60s French Marxists. And all of that sort of ended up being the soup out of which my uh, critical approach came for all of this. That and discovering that my uh, PhD was a uh, worthless joke and I was never going to get an academic job. Yeah, my, all my friends are going through that exact same experience right now. I'm luckily the one who didn't go into academia. Yeah, it's fun. But um, psychotrop. Yeah, psycho it, it's fun and definitely you know validating. So psychogeography is something that's come up a weird amount, like a synchronistic amount on this show before. Um, well, that's what psychogeography does. I know, it's it's very thematically appropriate. What? How would you, for someone who's just this, discovering this for the first time, how would you define it? What what is psychogeography? So psychogeography is a way about talking about a way of talking about physical spaces, um, most commonly urban spaces, but you can do it with anything. Um, in terms of their sort of psychological experience and um, history, so you know in psychogeography we're less interested in the design of a particular intersection and more. Um, in, say, the history of the intersection. What's happened here? Um, have there been any interesting murders on this block? What was the, what, you know, what was the history here? And then how does this block sort of merge into the next one? How, how does moving across this space feel? What happens as you sort of wander through the area and move among histories and among areas, uh, and among uh, urban areas? Uh, so it's, it's the study of space, uh, of urban space in terms of uh, experience and history. 
Yeah, it's a it's a cool um, little area because it combines so much stuff like you said history, crime, psychology, architecture. Even people like Alan Moore, as you said, bring magic into it. It's uh, and the situation. Yeah, there, yeah, the it, tournaments and stuff as well. Yeah, it, yeah, it ends up being a way of sort of diagnosing cities as though you know their psychological personalities. Hmm. What, what, what's the pathology of an urban space? So after that, you mentioned that Basilisk uh, wanted to be written. Uh, when did you start encountering all these, I guess, the alt-right, the neo-reactionaries, that kind of... Yeah, of... my sort of earliest encounter with it is actually, um, I stuck it in the, re- in the uh, most recent edition of the book as an appendix. Um, it was when a... Uh, asshole named uh theodore beale who goes by the pen name vox day uh ran a uh clever hijacking campaign to screw with the uh hugo awards in science fiction uh he figured out a voting exploit in them basically and by getting like 200 people to uh vote exactly the way he told them to he was able to um keep any actual like legitimate stuff that fans had picked for off of the ballot and fill it entirely with uh, fascist propaganda, basically. Yeah, this is the uh, rabid puppies and sad puppies thing of, like... Right, right. And that was... uh, Oh, that must have been back in 2015, right? Yeah, 2015, I think, was the year all of that happened. Um, I could check this easily enough, but instead I'll just risk being totally wrong. Um, And then... Um, that was the first time I had really gotten writing about, you know, the far right, uh, specifically, because I wrote uh, this essay that's in uh, Near Action of Basilisk now about um, just how awful these people are, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was writing some other stuff that had been inspired by that and, and um, leading off of that. And I found myself with this kind of nebulous idea for an essay about uh, Thomas Ligotti and Alan Turing. Okay, those are um, two people that kind of fascinate me. I actually grew up in the same town as Alan yeah, Turing, yeah. Uh, Sherborne, where he went to the oh, he, went, cool. he went to the posh boys' school. I very much didn't, and uh, so yeah. he's kind of been a, a ghost haunting my life for a little while. Oh, and, but, uh, and and what we learned from that is he's dead and you're not. So yeah, that so, worked out. So I, guess. I win. Um, yeah, well done. Uh, yeah, I. I and I, I had some sense of just that there was some interesting link to be drawn there around the notion of empathy uh, and the alien. Uh, and in the course of writing that essay, I sort of, you know, I sort of went, okay, I, I um, have this insight, but I don't have a subject yet. You know, this is a sort of entirely theoretical point about two texts that there's not an obvious reason to crash together other than that you can do this sort of obscure theoretical point about empathy with. Mm. Um, and then I read about Nick Land, um, who's a weird figure on the alt-right, uh, because he's actually a, um, you know, was a well-respected, if deeply eccentric, um, academic philosopher working in, um, fields of sort of nihilism and sort of cyberpunk philosophy, Mm. Uh, at the University of Warwick as part of uh, what's called the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit. Um, And basically, he had had a severe mental break. Um, He 
was one of the pioneers of the idea of accelerationism, uh, which is this idea that the sort of solution to the world's ills is to just make them go faster. Yeah, somehow we're going to... Um, that, you know, whatever... We're going to, like, make yeah, things so the, bad that things historical processes... Yeah, or that at least we're going to get through this period of history. It's sort of the, you know, the only way out is through, so let's go faster. Sure. Um, and, and he had been a pioneer of that, but um, one of the... Um, but in a really, like, weird esoteric way. Like, he was really interested in what he called hacking the human security system. Um, and, um, you know, uh, weird sort of... Uh, overtly visionary knowledge. And he took a lot of amphetamines. And finally, he ended up having taken too many amphetamines and had a uh, psychotic break, like you do. Um, he moved to China to sort of detox and calm down, sort of dropped off everyone's radar for a while, and then came back as a fascist. Oh. Again, like you do. It's pretty normal stuff. Right. Um, so that was interesting and troubling, to have this guy who was working in, you know, a lot of philosophical fields I found interesting like you know the hack the human security system stuff is a lot like you know uh, William Burroughs and uh, language as a virus into prison and all of those ideas um, the nihilism uh, was you know very trendy and I was starting to be a little interested in um, the sort of philosophical uses of nihilism um, so all of that uh, was, you know, and, and the whole academic angle was, you know, close to my own background. But then, you, you know, he ended up being turning into this um, weird fascist figure. And that was kind of troubling and interesting. Uh, and I realized he would work for the sort of stage on which to set uh, this uh, weird, you know, Thomas Ligotti, Alan Turing idea I had. Because, you know, he had a lot of the cyber philosophy stuff, which would let me tie in artificial intelligence and Turing and the Turing test. And he had this sort of nihilistic pessimism and uh, monstrosity that would let me get the Ligotti in. And so it just seemed like a really obvious, A, sort of way forward on the uh, work I'd already been doing. You know, it picked up on some of the other alt-right stuff I'd been doing. And it, wor you know, worked as a stage for this idea I had. Um, and then that essay just snowballed to about 55,000 words and became a book on me. Um, and, you know, I, so I described it as the book I accidentally wrote. Because um, I wasn't, you know, I didn't set out to write a book about uh, near action and the end of the world and the alt-right. Uh, but I did. Somehow. Uh, you know, this essay idea I had and was sort of poking at... Uh, you know, quickly snowballed. Um, I realized that to talk about the talk about um, Nick Land, I was going to have to talk about um, Mencius Moldbug, this uh, fascist blogger whose um, work uh, whose work Nick Land's work was a commentary on. And then looking at the two of them, I realized I was going to have to rope in this uh, sort of crank transhumanist named Eliezer Yudkowsky, um, who did a lot of sort of very dodgy AI research. Which hasn't actually produced anything even close to right. it's, it's, artificial intelligence, despite being... Even because it didn't, you know, produce any AIs or anything. Um, and so I, I realized that these sort of formed a weird... Not quite a topic. It's, you know, it's not quite as though these three people are all the same thing. But they're 
sort of deeply and repeatedly interrelated. Um, Like Elijah Dukowski is heavily funded by Peter Thiel, who also funds Mencius Moldbug. Uh, Land has commented uh, somewhat extensively on Yudkowsky. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of interconnections. And then on a sort of social level, the um, sort of social scene that formed around Yudkowsky's writing on a site called uh, Less Wrong um, eventually sort of drifted and a fair number of them became interested in near reaction and uh, the alt-right. They're kind of uh, infamously prone to take uh, discussions of race and IQ more seriously than they should these days. Uh, they've got a sort of unsettling eugenics bent in a lot of circles that started with uh, Yudkowsky's writing and are now, you know, moved one or two blogs down and are following people like... Um, Michael Anisimov or Scott Alexander, but uh, you know Yudkowsky was still sort of the wellspring for this. So there's a lot of just interconnections among them, and I realized I was going to have to talk about all three of those writers. And then by the time I had explained all three of those writers, I was already at eight thousand words, and I was you know, like, "Well, this isn't an essay, then, is it?" <laughs> and uh, Yudkowsky himself, um, he uh, his concept of uh, this ba- Rocco's Basilisk, that's kind of yeah, which isn't actually his concept. It's something that so, came yeah, out of less wrong and some posters on it. it you know, it, it uses his his ideas. It's following from his thought. Mm-hmm. But uh, the guy who invented Roko's Basilisk is actually uh, a guy who went by the handle Roko. So. Surprising again. Um, yes, but, um, clever name for for people who haven't been following that. It's it's a weird concept, and it's. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to explain in a way that doesn't sound completely insane, um, a, mostly because it's completely insane. True, it is, and it's very easy to undo. Like, I have no formal philosophical training, but I explained this to my wife, who has even less philosophical training, and she was like, oh yeah, why do I care about what's happening to a simulation of myself in the future, maybe? That's, right, and the yeah. answer to that, well... Let's back up and actually explain okay. explain it, and then I'll, I'll explain why these people can't let go of care, uh, uh, of caring about that. So the idea is, um, Yudkowsky wants to build a um, super intelligent artificial intelligence, like a computer god, um, basically. Yeah, basically a computer god, um, and um, Yudkowsky. Well, uh, what Roko comes up with the idea of is what if in the future this computer god exists and then looks back over history and goes okay the people who didn't do enough to bring to cause me to exist i'm going to punish them Hmm. i'm going to reincarnate them on a computer and just torture them for all eternity um so you know um the only way to avoid punishment by roko's basilisk is to give all of your money to elisir kowski um, and this really, really upset people um, because now they had this idea of, oh, no, they've thought about this futuristic artificial intelligence. And if they don't decide to give it all of their money, it's going to torture them for all eternity if it comes into being. Yeah. It's sort of a uh, weird Pascal's wager thing with an element of I have no mouth, but I'm a screen. Yeah. Um, and the, um, you know, obviously, you know, your wife's reaction is a sensible one of why do I care what happens to a simulation of me on a hard drive? Um, and the answer to that is the whole reason Yudkowsky wants to create the super intelligence is he doesn't want to die. Hmm. 
And so he's invested his entire philosophical system in sort of solving the problem of death. And for him, he thus came to the conclusion that you can, uh, that a reincarnation of yourself on a computer is the same as you, because that way it's not dying. Hmm. And so, you know, he has this sort of quasi-religious belief in that, and then this Roko's Basilisk comes up as an unintended consequence of that and one or two other, you know, sort of specific ideas that Yudkowsky needed to get his transhumanist dreams to. Hmm. So, and he is talking about reincarnations of yourself, like a, a convincing copy. A little like in that... Yeah, yeah. I don't it's, know, it's a um, com- completely accurately rendered simulation. Have you, if, have you ever seen uh, the film uh, Her? It's had a Wacken Phoenix and Scarlett Hansen in. Yeah, yeah. Where they, like, resurrect um, I forget his name, the uh, the Alan Watts, the philosopher, they kind of the computers like digitally resurrect him as a perfect copy. Yeah. That that's what um Dukowski's talking about here. He's not talking about like a brain upload into the cloud or a uh, cyborg version of yourself that lives forever. He's talking about a copy. It's a, like a more yes. it's like people who invent themselves and put themselves in the Sims. But yes. many times more accurate and so yeah, it's um yeah, to any, you've got to, yeah, you know, like he does, make the commitment that this is identical from yourself, in order for that to be in any way important that someone in the future makes a copy of you. Yeah, and you also have to um, suggest that it's possible to meaningfully communicate and make deals with a futuristic artificial intelligence, mm. uh, which he has a reason why that's possible too. Yeah, because. Yeah, again, who knows what a um, super god from the future is going to consider to be enough money or time given to it to make it exist. Yeah, um, so it's um, it's a very weird sort of um, philosophical argument that no one would care about except for the fact that um, people on, lo- on Less Wrong absolutely lost their shit over it. Yeah, people talked about like, depression and or super suicidal thoughts, yeah. basically. Yeah, they you know they they were genuinely terrified of this to the point where um, Yudkowsky made this uh, hilarious overreaction, uh, stepping in and just this you know screaming all caps post about how you do not talk about these things. Talking about these things is the only thing that makes them real, and then banned all discussion of it from the site and deleted all the posts, which went exactly how that always goes oh, yeah. on the internet. Yeah, exactly. The uh... What's it called an effect? Streisand effect. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So now um, Elon and Musk so, um, Yeah, and, and dates crimes because of it. Mm, yeah, because again, we live in a very normal world where things like that happen. Yes, yes, this is, this is a normal... I mean, it is a normal world. They all seem to be like this, as far <laughs> as we can observe. <laughs> so um, let, let, let's cleanse our palate before we, we go even further into this. Uh, I'm going to just play a little song. Uh, and it is a little song, say two minutes, 16 seconds. Uh, it's by a band called Closet Witch. Uh, they're out of uh, possibly New York, I'm not sure. Should have done a little more research on them apart from like listening to their album, because it's actually a really good album. It's on uh, Halo of Flies, which is always a good uh, record company. It's a song called Eyelids of Horus. I, I, I felt when I... Felt that I kind of felt this like near reactionary vibe to it. Like I can imagine someone like Mencius Molbug having a blog called Eyelids of Horus. Uh, but um, I'm going to play it for you now. 
It's on Halo 5, it's on Bandcamp, it's good. Listen. was uh, Closet Witch with Eyelids of Horus, um, but let's jump right back into these, this trio of absolutely bizarre, weird people who have terrible ideas about everything. Uh, yes! Mencius, Molbug, Yukowski, and McLand. So how did... See, yeah, you've mentioned before that the Less Wrong blog had a lot of... Uh, you know, it's kind of the very stereotypical uh, tech geek li libertarians who've trended to eugenics and then into fascism. So how did um, how do you get from Yukowski's ideas, his basilisk, uh, to Moldberg and Land? Yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, I, I, I want to stress Yudkowsky is not a fascist. Yudkowsky is not a neo reactionary. Yudkowsky uh, rejects both Moldberg and Land's thought. Hmm. Um, it's more people who like it. It's more, you know, people who liked Yudkowsky might also like, you know, the, the algorithm on Amazon would recommend Moldbug, Moldbug to people who like Yudkowsky, if you will. Sure. Um, but I think a lot of the connection is they have similar, um, they're both prone to that sort of technologist error of, of creating, um, some from scratch instead of paying attention to existing solutions. Yeah. Um, you know, it's this very common um, software engineer 
reasoning flaw that creating a completely new approach to a problem is almost certainly better than paying attention to what's already been done. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, my, my response to that is, you know, you, you certainly can reinvent the wheel, but nine times out of 10, what you get from it is a very lumpy wheel. Hmm. You know, you get a sort of hexagonal wheel if you try to reinvent the wheel. Um, and you know, there might be reasons to do that anyway. Um, but you know, both Yudkowsky and, Moldbug would have benefited greatly from actually reading and understanding a bit more before they shot their mouths off. Uh, but instead, they, you know, do this very, you know, ambitious. I'm going to create a completely new system of reasoning from scratch, um, and that has a certain rhetorical appeal. And and they both, you know, and the fact that they both do this, um, the fact that they're both um, autodidacts, um, you know. Uh, Moldbug has no actual training in the humanities. Um, Yudkowsky was um, homeschooled and has no degrees uh, at all. I don't remember if Yarvin, uh, Curtis Yarvin, the actual name of, of uh, Mencius Moldbug, actually uh, finished college or not. Uh, but he's similarly just sort of very anti-academia. Um, so they both have this sort of intellectual outsider style and this very sort of let's you know let's relitigate everything from first principles um, approach. Hmm. Yeah, and they're both sort of out of the same sort of Silicon Valley tech culture. So that's sort of how they draw uh, from similar audiences. And that's a uh, contrast with Land, who is like as you said a trained, tenured um, humanities professional. Is. Yeah, though, I mean, though a very, um, even in his academic work, yeah, he, he's trained, um, you know, he's a professional, he knows his stuff, but he had that very iconoclastic, let's throw out everything we know and do, you know, new radical stuff and rip everything up approach. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm sympathetic to that, too. I mean, I, 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 I like the aesthetic of that, but I'm mindful that... I'm mindful of the consequences of ignoring everything that everyone has already said, which is that you're likely to fail to anticipate some obvious points. Yeah. And um, one of the things I didn't expect, which I found really fascinating, um, I've read a few of the other alt-right explainers, uh, most, uh, the biggest, well, not biggest, or by very means, any means best, is um, Killer the Normies. And, um, ah, yes, Angela. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I wasn't expecting, which was really cool in retrospect, was you bring in a lot of uh, references to Blake and Milton, which is total opposite yeah. of what I would expect from this. Uh, so how do two like giants of English literature and thought and kind of weirdos as well, but kind of um, canonized weirdos, how did they figure into all this? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of one part. This actually makes sense. One part, uh, just me being me. Um, Blake endlessly pops up in my work. That's just sort of one of my calling cards. Is uh, if, if any, any project that goes on long enough, Blake will find. I, I will find a way to put Blake in. Um, but in this case, he came in through Milton, basically. Um, because Milton, I realized, I decided I did really have to deal with, um, in part because um, of some just here and there lines Moldbug has. 
he um, had a declaration that uh, chaos is always, you know, the devil's. Um, and order is always good. Chaos is always evil. Um, and he had this, um, you know, leng- uh, in one of his essays, just a sort of lengthy riff on um, what the devil is like that was bad and stupid and didn't mention Milton. And it, it struck me as sort of, this was an obvious response of, you completely missed Milton, but it's also one that sort of... Um, gets at Moldbug's big problem, which is he completely misses things that he would know about if he had gone through sort of more conventional academic knowledge of things. Um, And it's also, you know, um, Moldbug and Land both have this sort of very uh, edgelordy, oh, look at us, aren't we the uh, nefarious villains? Like Moldbug uh, prances around calling himself a Sith Lord in all seriousness. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this sort of, you know, ostentatious evil, uh, you know, performative evilness to them. Um, and I just thought looking at Milton in Paradise Lost, um, would be interesting for that. I, I, I thought, you know, Paradise Lost, um, a close reading of that would be an interesting way to swerve, especially because, you know, by that point in writing the interaction of Basilisk, I realized that its structure was very tangent based Hmm. um it's it's not a book that makes a sort of linear argument and i think that's to Um, its credit actually i think it would be a yeah i mean much less interesting book if you stuck to biographies and then refutations of three different people i mean part of the joy of this was like being up at like midnight and realizing hey i've been reading about blake for half an hour and i don't know how to get back but i like where i am you know yeah, and I'm, and I'm not quite sure how I got here either. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, yeah, I, I, and that was just something I sort of realized early on the book wanted to do. It wanted to sort of swerve around like that. Um, and, you know, so I, I, was, I was getting through this section, and I just sort of had this impish, what if I went off on a tangent about Paradise Lost right now? No one would see that coming. Mm-hmm. And so I did. Um, and then once I did that, it became pretty easy to shoehorn in Blake, who I was able to sort of see as a solution to um, Land Yudkowsky and Moldbug. I was, I was able, I thought, in Blake to see a very different way of being weird than what they came to. And um, um, to avoid, not to spoiler it, but uh, what was that solution? Um, with Blake, it's this notion of, um, you know, Blake is very rebellious. Um, Blake is, um, rebellious on really sort of weird and deep levels. Um, one of his early sort of prophetic works, because one of the interesting things about Blake is he just sort of created his own bespoke mythology and wrote, um, prophecies and religious texts for this mythology mm-hmm. um and one of them uh the book of urizen uh urizen in blake's mythology is this figure of um absolute reason and order and fixity he wants to sort of measure uh and map the world and get everything into place so that everything is exactly set uh and perfect and correct um and singular 
And and Blake is writing this mythology of Urizen and trying to rebel against Urizen, um, but constantly running into problems. Like, um, you know, he, he keeps sort of proposing ways to rebel against Urizen, have characters try things, and they always just sort of uh, sink into the problem. Eventually, Urizen's sort of single vision uh, infects everything. And what's interesting about, you know, the book of Urizen is the book itself is resisting Urizen. Um, there's no fixed order to the illustrations. Uh, he puts the illustrations in a different order every time he prints the book. Um, he colors them individually, so no two copies, you know, look alike. They're all hand-colored and hand-illustrated and totally unique and singular and defy each other. So there's not a single version of the text. There's pages he takes in and out. Um, and the text keeps contradicting itself. It'll sort of go back and retell a bit of story it's already told, but we'll tell it in a different way with a, you know, with, with, with different angles and different things going on. Like Yurizen has sort of three contradictory stories of creation that come up over the course of the book of Yurizen. So that's sort of how he attacks Yurizen, how he attacks this sort of um, singularity and fixity. And I, and I associate fascism with that a lot. You know, I, I think fascism um, and the far right are very, you know, here is the single authority that is going to come, in, come into play. Here is the absolute uh, law. Here is the absolute order. It's very Eurozenic. Um, and so, you know, and that's very much what Blake was was there to struggle with. But he struggled with it in a way that's um, much more nuanced than just sort of a Miltonian devil, and therefore I rebel. Yeah. And um, all this talk of order and chaos is probably going to remind people who've been paying attention to the whole... Um, weird right alt-right scene of um jordan peterson who uh doesn't come up in your book because he wasn't he was a nobody when you were writing this but yeah which i'm glad for i probably would have felt obliged to write an essay about him if he was somebody. yeah he's um he's a weird he's a very odd figure he's at once incredibly conventional very dull there's very little he would say that i wouldn't find i don't know my dad or granddad saying but He's also, I, I don't know if you read this article that was in the Toronto Star this morning, but he, it was written by a former friend of his, and he's, uh, he's a, uh, Jordan Peterson's a very odd person in real life. He's um, almost manic depressive in his, the ways he goes into periods of deep depression, followed by pronouncements that he's going to single-handedly save all of the Western world. Uh, he believes that his wife had prophetic dreams about um, the world being close to the end. He's like an inducted shaman into different things. He's a bizarre character. Uh, have you gone into Peterson much? Is there like a... Um, um, do you have a I haven't written about him. Um, I've read a bit about him. Um, I feel like he's getting enough flack from enough corners that I don't know that there's much I can add to it, and, and I'm kind of disinclined to uh, charge out onto the field unless I feel like I can contribute something new to the discussion. Uh, if I were to uh, take on Peterson, what would interest me about him is is the sort of mystical aspects of, of his thought. Yeah, his uh, early uh, um, meaning. You know, one of the things uh, he was recently... 
Yeah, I find I find that more interesting than uh, Twelve Rules mm-hmm. for Life. Um, Maps of Meaning has all of these uh, completely incomprehensible and meaningless, meaningless diagrams about the dragon of chaos, and that's right up my alley. Thought well, it might be. Um, one, yeah, one of the things that um, I saw recently, um, him talking about, um, he uh, made this snooty point about how um, people who are you know so willing to um, basically accept tran- uh, transgender ideology um, are also weirdly resistant to distinguishing between actual men and women like masculine and feminine. And I found that really baffling because I feel like once you've got this notion of the symbolic and mystical masculine and feminine, which are distinct from individual men and women, it really shouldn't be hard to get to uh, um, valid. Like you've done work on that already. You've you've destabilized uh, gender to the point where you've realized it's this sort of abstract mystical force as opposed to, you know, something that's an innate uh, property of chromosomes. Uh, And yet somehow he concludes that, you know, therefore biological sex is absolute. And I'm not sure how that works. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't don't know if, like, the masculine energy just sort of, uh, you know, oozes out of the Y chromosome. Like, I, 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 I really don't get the mechanism for this, especially if you know, by his own admission, the, the symbolic masculine and the symbolic feminine are separate from the biological masculine and biological feminine, um, such that, you know, an individual man or an individual woman don't necessarily need to, um, you know, display all the traits of the symbolic uh, versions. But, uh, yeah, so that's interesting to me, the way in which he... Uh, dabbles in a lot of sort of mystic bullshit that I'm familiar with and, and fond of. Um, there's, there's also video of him that surfaced recently of him suggesting that um, ancient drawings of, ent- of uh, entwined serpents, uh, which show up in a bunch of um, you know early uh, civilization art from various civilizations, uh, the Incas, I believe, uh, Australian Aborigines, and then um, some versions of the Caduceus in in Western culture are two intertwined snakes, yeah. um, and and he suggests that this is uh, early understanding of DNA. I remember that, uh, which is, up is in Promethea by Alan Moore as well. Exactly, yeah. Like Alan Moore makes the same point, but Alan Moore at least has the good sense to recognize that he's doing a kind of mystic synchronicity bullshit thing yeah. there. Like Alan Moore does it in a much more um, self-aware way uh, where it's symbolic, whereas Peterson seems to be saying, no, um, these, you know, um, ancient Incans took a bunch of ayahuasca and had the secrets of DNA revealed to them by the serpent gods. um, The episode last week was on uh, Tao Lin's new book about his same kind of ideas about ayahuasca and DMT and salvia and cannabis and so on and uh, there's a as I said about then there's a a subtype of middle-aged man who gets really really weirdly into these ideas about psychedelics and DNA and they usually end up in a very reactionary place because it's not a short hop skip and jump from ancient knowledge to 
um, reactionary stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, anytime you're sort of valorizing the past as knowing more than us, you're um, risking, you know, in, in very absolute senses. Like the you know the modern world is this sort of fallen world, and the past was much better and, and idyllic. It, it becomes really easy to become reactionary. Mm, yeah, in much the same way, it's very easy when uh, yeah the stereotypical computer nerds do it when they believe that engineering problems. Uh, are similar to eugenics, and we can just engineer away uh, the degeneracy of the modern world. Uh, yeah, and um, one of the one of the chapters that really stuck out to me because it was something I, I knew of, I knew about, and read a little on, but had never dived into because it's something I thought, okay, these are stupid ideas that I don't need to know about. It was the Austrian school stuff. Oh, yes, which I wrote with my dear friend Jack Grant. Yeah, yeah. That was a really good chapter because, it, like I say, it's uh, something I wasn't really that aware of. And um, it's without um, impugning like, a, a direct causal relationship between the Austrian school, the von, von Mises, and so on, and the alt right, and also neoliberalism, it kind of traces a a trajectory from these guys in their Austrian ski lodge, uh, working out libertarianism from Holcloth to modern neoliberalism as we see it in Hillary Clinton or Justin Trudeau or whoever, and also where we see the Austrian school come up nowadays, which is in like guys who live in their basements with their parents, uh, telling people they're going to go on helicopter rides and uh, that kind of idiotic and that they should buy bitcoin oh yeah love some bitcoin they gotta have their bitcoins like that uh now if you saw in the news there was that 30 year old guy who had to have his parents um take him to court to move out of their basement and he kept yeah and i saw he he uh nominally ran his own yeah. business and i i stopped following the story before anyone unearthed what the business was but i was like oh, i bet it, it's 100 <laughs> guaranteed to be bitcoin uh I, I would bet if I had any Bitcoin, and I don't because I'm reasonably intelligent, I would bet all my Bitcoins on him being a some sort of Bitcoin farmer or scammer. Because yes, because his hair is gross and he has a gross beard and lives in his basement. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what? Um, how do you? How do? You, um, how does the Austrian school figure into this? In, into a book? about neo-reactionism and the alt-right? Well, it's a huge influence on Maltbug, so that's sort of its um, immediate way in. Um, but one of the sort of linking threads, once you get past the main essay and into the backing essays, um, especially because, you know, eventually they stop being quite so straightforwardly about the alt-right. There's one on uh, David Icke, and there's one on um, trans-exclusive radical feminists, neither of which are, strictly speaking, alt-right concerns. Yeah, still very good. Um, but there's a... Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of the terms. Mm, that was very good. Um, in particular. Um, but um, one of the things that is sort of the linking connection active tissue among all of those is a particular sort of crack pottery. Um, and, and I like crack pots. You know, crack pots are actually kind of the linking thread of all of my work, whether it be 
you know, Doctor Who, whether it be I'm interested in British comics through the lens of the magical war between Alan Moore and Grant Morrison. Yeah, I want to bring whether it up for, be, uh, because uh, that's that's a thing for me. That's a carry on. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I wrote a history of Wonder Woman and uh, William Moulton Marston, the creator of Wonder Woman, was definitely a bit of a crackpot. I love crackpots. Um, they, they fascinate me. Um, and, and the Austrian school fits very nicely into that. The thing that sort of cemented it for me is um, I learned that the Austrian school completely rejects empiricism. Um, they think that empiricism has no place whatsoever in economics and that uh, instead the entire economic system will be derived from um, theoretical principles as a series of uh, consequences following inevitably from the axiom individual people act. Yeah, which is which kind of surprised me because I've always had this stereotypical image of these basement-dwelling libertarians as being kind of arch-empiricists. Uh, nothing A is A, nothing exists out of... Um, science and mathematics the humanities is right right but no instead the austrian school is um sort of exaggeratedly anti-empiricism um in a way that was just ridiculous and funny to me like i I love that immediately I, i i was fascinated you know economics that rejects empiricism that's so self-evidently bad yeah how do you come up with that um and, you know, the knowledge of both of that um, and its importance to the alt-right. And I just really wanted to write something with Jack. Um, Jack is, um, he's another writer on my site, eruditorumpress.com. And he is a um, committed Marxist and a very intelligent Marxist. Um, most of what I know from, know about Marx, I, I know because I unlearned the boring shit I learned in grad school and listened to Jack instead. Um and I knew he would do some great work on that, I, and I really wanted to write something with him. Um, and he had helped me develop this um, point about Moldbug, that Moldbug is a failed Marxist in the sense of Jupiter being a failed star. Like, he's, he's getting all of these Marxist insights, he's, he's covering a lot of the same... Um, territory and problems of Marx. He gets a bunch of the first steps and then he just sort of stops accumulating mass uh, and sort of doesn't quite hit the tipping point. It, it peters out yeah, instead. That's something people um, pointed out about the whole, a lot of the alt-right, even Andrew Nagel's pointed this out, they, their concerns are very similar to Marxist concerns. It's just then they veer off into complete idiocy, idiocy and terrible ideas right because they can't actually be fucking bothered to read Mm, marx notably i mean this is uh to to go back to jordan peterson one of the things i i find most infuriating about him is for all that he rails against postmodern neo-marxism and and you know the destructive influence of derrida and foucault he literally never quotes derrida or foucault Mm, at any length the terms marxist i see no evidence he's read them Nowhere in any of this stuff that I've ever found or seen cited is there like the slightest substantive engagement with either of these thinkers that are apparently you know embodying everything he hates. Um, and this is true of Moldbug as well. Like Moldbug, you know, rails against communism and 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 proclaims that you know communism and liberalism are the same things, and never engages with Marx. Never has anything like a substantive engagement with Marx. Um, 
and and yeah, this sort of baffling failure to engage with your with your adversaries. I mean, it's a point of pride for me that in near reaction to Basilisk, I quote the hell out of all of Moldbugiakowski and Land. Yeah, at length, it's right. It's a book is full of lengthy quotes yeah, from yeah. them. There's citations you know, I, 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 I every page. Um, that, that's yeah, a, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, really carefully hugging these texts and um, reading them very closely and um, thoroughly. Um, and and so, you know, part of part of and the right doesn't do this with Marx no. uh, very often. The Austrians don't do this with Marx. Um, and I had so I had this sense, you know, th- this sense that Marx has a lot of very good responses to the far right, and that the far right is paranoid about Marx without engaging with Marx. And so I knew I, w- I you know, to tackle the Austrian school, I was going to need uh, Jack. I, was gonna, I, I mean, I was going to need a Marxist, and if I was going to get a Marxist, it was obviously going to be Jack. Uh, and so I, I pitched to him this essay about um, the Austrian school as uh and marx as their basilisk mm. um and what ended up happening was i wrote um a couple of paragraphs as sort of an initial um here's the sort of thing i want to do he wrote um a huge chunk of first draft that wasn't really stitched together or organized it, it, it was notes with a lot of gaps and like bold face and then we'll talk about this sections and i read over that and sort of got it into the shape of an essay um did some edits on it worked my stuff into it uh sent it back to him with you know a suggestion on how to end it and then he came up with a draft and then i took one more crack at sort of massaging the opening and closing to fit with the rest of the book better um so probably about 80 percent of that essay the first draft of was written by jack and i mean we went oh you know i i wrote i contributed sections and you know revised it and went over it a lot but this was one where i was um very much the fault I, I was very much the closer on that uh, essay instead of the originator um, or rather, I, I sort of set up the prompt and then uh, closed out the game. But Jack did the sort of long slog middle section of that of that essay that was um, the bulk of the sort of actual work of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I I'm very proud of that proud of that essay. Um, but I, I I have to take the step back and give a ton of credit to Jack on yeah. that one. And like I said, it it is. If you haven't ever engaged with the Austrian school before, it's a really good place to start. It, I, I was guilty of being like the alt-right people who haven't read Marx. I hadn't read anything by or about, really about the Austrian school. I, I knew they had rough ideas, I knew names, but they were always bogeymen to me, like uh, Marx and Foucault and Derrida are bogeymen to Jordan Peterson. So um, yeah, so thanks for actually making me a complete human being. and. Uh, yeah, and and yeah, Jack did a great job of really going through and tracing sort of all the phases of the all right of the Austrian school. And um, so, one of the one of the paragraphs that absolutely like diamond bullet right to the forehead. This is amazing insight. Uh, comes sort of in your uh, summation chapter. The um, Called, uh, zero to zero, final spin around the shuddering abyss at the heart of all things. You do great titles, by the way. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'd forgotten the sort of full magnitude the, of that one. The, the, yeah, my Peter Thiel yeah, essay. They're, yeah, they're very good. And um, so I just want to read this little paragraph because I want to kind of I want to kind of build on this one. So, <clears throat> sure. So you say, 
To be clear, my contention is not merely that the alt-right is stupid, nor even that its individual adherents are. It is, and they are. But the problem is more fundamental. The alt-right is stupidity. It's the elemental particle of which every part is comprised. To engage in alt-right thinking is to turn oneself into a vacuous skin suit animated by raw stupidity. There's literally not a single shred of non-stupidity in the entire thing. Mencius Mulberg, stupid. Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos, stupid. Donald Trump, Peter Thiel, Fox State, stupid, stupid, stupid. Neo reaction, stupid. Race realism, stupid. Austrian economics are stupid. MAGA and Pepe and the Daily Stormer are stupid. Even Nick Land is only not stupid to the ex precise extent to which there's a possibility that what he's doing is some elaborate game. And frankly, even that sounds pretty stupid when you say it out loud. Every single detail of every single aspect of this entire cratering shitstorm in which the human race seems hell-bent on going extinct is absolutely fucking stupid. Uh, one bravo that was even, which I recognize we read out loud, has really great rhythm to it too. But, um, Thank you. I, 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 I do actually uh, obsess over my IMs in revision occasionally. And um, so as a kind of concluding point to your work that these people, even the most academically well-regarded ones like the Austrian school, they're all incredibly stupid. Where does, where does that leave us as people who kind of need to resist these kind of thoughts, whether it's in the Hugo Awards voting or in you know, voting for presidents, right? Where does the realization that the people on the other side, uh, on the real other side, not just like neoconservatives or neoliberals, that they're incredibly stupid? What can, what can we do with that? Uh, well, I mean, I'd, I'd refer you back to the first sentence of the book, let us assume that we are fucked. Oh, okay. I mean, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure there's much you can uh, do with it. Actually, um, I, to point out the, uh, the first sentence of the book is, when I started this book, it was fun. But, um, but go on. Oh, that's the, intro that's the introduction. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the first, the first uh, sentence of, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, the, the, the next paragraph after the one you, you uh, quoted begins, nothing follows from this, in all likelihood, literally. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I, so I am pretty pessimistic about what can be done about it. I mean, stupidity is a very hard problem to solve. Um, it's very resistant to, um, to solution because you can't engage with it. Um, and it sort of always manages to have a trump card. It's, it's a very stupid trump card necessarily. Um, but it's real good at responding to everything. I mean, stupidity can take down any argument it wants to. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I think stupidity is extremely dangerous. Um, and I, I want to even distinguish that from stupid people being extremely dangerous. Individual stupid people, you can usually, you know, run rings around and humiliate and deal with fairly well. They're aggravating, but they're not a uh, existential crisis. But stupidity as a concept, as an argument, uh, is incredibly difficult to deal with. Um, and so I am kind of pessimistic on a what-do-we-do level. Um, I mean, one of the... And the whole book kind of uh, actively avoids getting too far into the question of, you know, what do we do of, of practical measures and practical resistance. Um, 
because I don't know that those questions are very interesting on an individual level to me. Um, you know, I don't think um, as an individual, um, much like I don't, you know, try to create a alternative theoretical system uh, to combat mold bug or anything, because um, as I point out, you know, philosophical system, uh, political systems as a philosophical exercise are sci-fi writing. They're not productive. No one ever, you know, in the history of politics, no one has ever phoned up the philosophers and said, okay, can, can you, you know, just draw us up the design now? Mm. You know, that's not how it works. Um, actual power structures and systems don't come out of uh, philosophical rigor. They come out of messy pragmatic compromises and so i'm kind of disinterested in, uh to an extent in solutions uh in part because i i'm yeah want to adopt this pessimism for that book at least um of um you know we're fucked and in part because i'm a little skeptical of the individual levels uh, of the level of the individual in response to history <clears throat> and i think that a overemphasis of of individualism is where a lot of things have gone wrong. That that uh, excessive focus on the heroic is very much the problem and not the solution. Um, so I didn't want to embrace any sort of individual here's what to do approach. Uh, so what I ended up coming up, uh, up with, and this is sort of most focused on, I'd say, in the Turf's essay, is this idea of haunting the future. Um if we can't win, if there's nothing we can do to fix things, what we can do is to create weird, unsettled problems that will that the future will have to deal with. We can do things that we can do things and create things that even if they don't address the um, disasters of the present in an adequate way, even if they don't, you know, stop Trump or get Jordan Peterson to shut up or um, anything like that, or, you know, reverse Brexit. Uh, even, even if we can't do any of those things, what we can do is um, create ideas that are going to hang around and when we come to the future, be these sort of weird, unsettled problems that won't let go, that, that, won't, let go, that won't let us just sort of sit back and ignore things. Um, that will force a reckoning down the line. And so I feel like the left, you know, even if it can't win, and maybe it can, you know, this is just sort of part of my pessimism is sort of a performative position for the book. You can be as pessimistic as you want, but you still have to, you know, get up and live your life the next day. Uh, pessimism does not do a great job of just making all of your problems go away. Um, but, you know, even if we can't win, um, we can make sure there's another round. We can make sure the we can make sure there's another fight down the line. Uh, we can make there be problems to solve in the future. Nice, that's that's good. Um, I'm Thank almost uh, almost very almost um, want to just end it there because it's such a nice you know like um, summation. But I, I I really want to talk about Grant Morrison and Alan Moore having a magic fight because that 
shit fascinates me and it's I, I grew up on those two guys those are like my dads uh, so to have my dads having a magic fight is pr pretty fun you know, I liked, if I had like two dads, I'd definitely want to see them fight. And I'd definitely want to see them fight in magic even more. So tell us, a, tell me a little about that. Sure. Um, I mean, that one is, you know, I, I've said my work focuses on crackpots and it tends to emerge out of a sort of central perversity I can't quite let go of. Um, and in that... Oh, what? Cut out. I hope you're back. Here yeah. now? So, so you're saying about crackpots. So. Oh, well, where should I pick up? So, your work emerges out of a central perversity. Yeah, I mean, um, and, you know, with Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, what you have is you have two uh, writers from the same country, and it's not a huge country, um, who came up in a, around the same time, you know, uh, their professional careers started within a year of each other. Um, they broke out into the mainstream within a couple years of each other. Um, they have a lot of similar, you know, stylistic similarities. Uh, they've worked on a lot of the same companies and publications. Um, and they're both practicing magicians. Uh, so you have these two people who are, you know, seemingly incredibly similar, and they hate each other's guns. They absolutely hate each other, um, and that's fascinating <laughs> to me. Like when when you have, you know, it's weird enough that uh, two of the most important British comics writers of their generation, um, because there's not, you know, there, there's not that many British comics writers. There's a disproportionate number of important British comics mm -hmm. writers, but it's still a relatively small island and a relatively small medium. Um, and when you have, like, the two lions of it are both practicing occultists and magicians, okay, that's weird to begin with. And when you have them just hating each other, I, I, I feel like you have a uh, sprawling multi-book series <laughs> there. And you do, as it turns out. Because uh, the first book is about 900 pages. Yeah. yeah. And that's on your uh, Eretorium site? Or parts of it? Huh? Yeah, right now that book is not in print because I pulled everything um, after my name change and I haven't gotten that one reissued yet. Um, I'd love to come back and talk about it when I oh, do. Yeah, um, right now I'm about halfway through. Uh, yeah, I'm about halfway through writing the second volume right now, which is on Watchmen. Um, and the seventh chapter of that has just bogged me down for over a year and I got distracted. But I'm finally back writing on that and it should be up on the site within a couple of months. Um, and then I'll have uh, volume one back in print in a couple of months as well. Uh, so yeah, I, I'd love to come back and talk about British comics and occult ma and occult warfare. Yeah, sometimes those are literally my two special subjects. Um, <laughs> All right then, it's yeah, a day. Cool. Um, so yeah, let's let's sign off for today uh, by playing some more occulty weirdos. Um, Alan Maud's done some music, hasn't he? And he, he he's talked a little about uh, black metal in his work, but. Um, and I think Grant Morrison is also a musician. Um, so it's... Yeah, he uh, went into comics after failing to be a rock oh, yeah. star. Again, like you do. And he hangs out with, um, what's his name, Jared Way from uh, My Chemical Romance, who is like yes. almost his protege in terms of his style. Uh, yes. But 
so it makes sense we should play some weird music. Um, this is a band called Necros Christos from Berlin. It means death of Jesus, or you know, it, it's police stuff. It's they these guys look like complete assholes in their band picture. One of them's wearing this like Moroccan style thing, and he's got his hands close together, and he's wearing like a do rag and. Yeah, these guys just look like the dumbest, weirdest guys. So it makes sense that we should play them as well. And they've had uh, like a big reissue of um, an album called Domedon Doxomedon. Uh, and I'm going to play a little song after there called Exiled in Transformation. It's seven minutes long. You're going to have to listen to all seven minutes. Um, but And we'll come back next week. I'm... There's going to be some interesting stuff coming out. A bunch of very nice publishing companies have given me galleys of some really interesting stuff. And um, I'm going to be talking about some of it. Because that's the format of what I'm doing here. If you haven't clocked to that right yet. And from the sounds of it, we'll get to talk about um, what happens when a very hairy person and a very bald person are both comic writers and they fight with um, magic. Uh, magic in this case being drawing little doodles, then having a wank in order to charge the doodles with occult energy. Um, so, come back next week, leave reviews, like it on Facebook, share it, whatever, you, you know the drill by now. And uh, thanks to Elizabeth for talking, and thanks to you for listening. Oh, yep. thanks for having and, me. Uh, here's Necros Christos.
Yeah. <laughs>
Fucking hell.